Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, your Mets beat the Red Sox last night, and I'm not happy about it. Yeah, and they really shouldn't. They're pretty terrible, pitching-wise, at least. But I saw 7-4. Well, that doesn't make me feel any better. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> the Mets have this app that allows you to try to affect crowd noise, so you can like hit a button if you think that they should boo. Huh. But uh, it didn't really work for me that well during the, the first couple of games. So. <laughs> okay, well, we'll get to a little more baseball later yeah, because yeah, uh, I'm yeah. a little concerned about how they're going to do in, in the coronavirus. Um, we have a great show for you today. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff. Uh, we're going to talk about the case for Susan Rice as vice president. Uh, I think you will want to hear that. We're going to talk about some ambassadors who have gone wild, why relations with China are getting very, very bad, Uh, a U.S. decision to sell advanced armed drones abroad, what could possibly go wrong, anti-corruption protests in Bulgaria, Bob Gates continues to frustrate and confuse me. We'll do some uh, bit about the truth about TikTok. And then, as we said earlier, talk a little baseball. Um, Ben, you did the interview today. Tell us everything. Yeah, I talked to Yonit Levy, who's uh, anchors the leading Israeli newscast every night and is an awesome journalist and um, a lot of fun, too. But, you know, there's so much going on in Israel with these protests, with uh, the COVID outbreak being, you know, increasingly as bad as ours, um, with Netanyahu's corruption trial, with the things blowing up in Iran, (laughs) with annexation. We, We covered a lot of ground, let's say. I think people get a good on the ground look at what's happening in Israel. Good. I actually cannot wait to hear that because I've been watching the images of these protests from here, mostly on social media, and it looks pretty intense, looks pretty bad over there. So I hope everyone's okay. And, um, you know, Bibi's not as much of an authoritarian as Trump, although maybe I know the answer to that and I don't like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and it's personal there. As Yoni points out, there's 6,000 people outside his house, you know. Wow. That's like the White House. Okay, Ben, let's start uh, with something a little different for us, which is... We want to make the case for choosing Susan Rice to be Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee. And so to be clear, we are neutral. We're not picking sides. Susan has no idea we're doing this. But there's been a lot of punditry about Susan Rice's qualifications, and it has been mostly stupid and mostly annoying. So we wanted to make the affirmative case for her as people who know her and then push back on some of the bullshit as people who have lived some of the bullshit. So, Ben, if you don't mind, I'm just going to run through a few things and we'll kick it over to you and then we can just go from there. Um, but my first point would be like, if you're someone who cares deeply about academic credentials, Susan attended Stanford for undergrad. She was a Truman scholar. She was elected Phi Beta Kappa. She went to Oxford on a Rhodes scholarship where she got her PhD in international relations. So she is, uh, as we say in Boston, wicked smart. Uh, her foreign policy experience is really only matched by Joe Biden. I mean, she worked on Bill Clinton's NSC for several years. She was assistant secretary of state for African affairs at the age of 32. I mean, that is unbelievable. I think she might've been the youngest ever. She served as uh, Obama's ambassador to the United Nations for three or four years. It's a cabinet-level job. You manage a huge team. You represent the U.S. uh, at the Security Council and all sorts of forums that require public diplomacy. You also have to cajole or pressure other countries to, like, do things we need them to do. And she had a lot of success there, right? She got uh, sanctions on Iran and North Korea and did a lot of really important stuff. She then did uh, four years as Obama's national security advisor, And like that job, it's hard to overstate how important it is. You lead the process of creating and managing all U.S. foreign policy. I mean, that's sort of the shorthand. And so like by no means am I suggesting that every policy Susan worked on through the duration of her career was successful or or the right choice. Like we've talked about many things that Obama got wrong. The point is that kind of lived experience is invaluable and impossible to replicate outside of those jobs. And, you know, 
just in terms of Susan's personal views, because like so much of what people think of her as a reflection of people she worked with or for, she opposed the war in Iraq. She's a huge proponent of diplomacy and empowering multilateral institutions to solve problems. She was critical in managing the Ebola response. You know, that could like maybe come in handy with this whole COVID thing. So a couple criticisms of Susan that we just want to take on. Uh, the first is about Benghazi, right? There's all these idiots who are saying, if you name Susan Rice, it will dredge up the whole Benghazi scandal again. And first, I personally can't imagine something that would sound more irrelevant and tired and old in the midst of a pandemic than fucking Benghazi. But like, okay, I'll take the bait. Let's say voters do care. How about we acknowledge for a minute that Susan's only role in Benghazi was going on a fucking Sunday show days after it happened. Like the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. doesn't deal with embassy security. They don't do intelligence assessments. This is Republicans literally shooting the messenger. Why? Because they are big fans of attacking black women whenever possible. They like to focus on the squad. They like to focus on Susan. So let's just be clear what we're enabling when we buy into this bullshit. And then there's this criticism, right, that she's tough or that she's brusque. And it's like, okay, yes, Susan's a tough negotiator. She doesn't suffer fools. She, she, you know, is incredibly effective at her job. Mike Pompeo is one of the biggest assholes on the planet. He's currently our chief diplomat, and he's treated as some, like, front runner to run for president. So I think we should all think about gender roles in some of these critiques. The last thing is just, like, the suggestion that she has no electoral experience. And yes, it is absolutely true. Susan hasn't run for office, but she's worked on, I think, every presidential campaign since 1988. So she's got a hell of a lot of political experience. So Ben, I've been, you know, ranting for a minute. I will pause <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and go to you here. Yeah. And look, I echo your caveat that everybody's being discussed would be great. Um, we, we've we loved Elizabeth Warren on this podcast. Uh, yep. Stacey Abrams is, you know, best friend of Vote Save America. Um, a lot of good people. But Kamala Harris, yeah, amazing Exactly, people. you know, Kamala. But, you know, for Susan, I think I'd focus on a few things. One is she's really the only person I've seen on the list, I think, that has significant experience in the executive branch of the U.S. government, right, at the State Department, at the White House uh, for many years. And that's going to matter more than usual because the executive branch has been decimated by Trump. So you're going to have to rebuild the State Department. You're going to have to rebuild government agencies that have been hollowed out. And having somebody who knows how government's supposed to function, um, that would be very helpful. The best example is Ebola. And, and this gets at why I think Susan can broaden beyond national security. Her finest hour as national security advisor, anybody that you asked before this pandemic would have said was the Ebola crisis. Susan is the one who raised the alarm on it early in part because she'd been Assistant Secretary of State for Africa, so knew that these West African countries are going to have a hard time managing this. She really drove this idea that we should deploy U.S. military forces to West Africa, that thousands of troops to set up medical infrastructure there. That was a total out-of-the-box idea. It had never been done before. Frankly, the kind of out-of-the-box thinking we could have used in, in March uh, yeah, in this country for, sure. uh, for this pandemic. And, and it, it, was cri- it was the key to stamping out Ebola. And, and in that process, you know, Susan's not just working with state and DOD. She's working with Dr. Fauci. She's working with NIH and CDC. Um, and you know, increasingly, you know, national security hits immigration policy. It hits health policy. It hits these other seemingly more domestic issues. Um, so I think if you want someone who knows the executive branch, who knows how to get things done, who knows how those departments should be organized and coordinated, and frankly can help manage a pandemic response, um, that's something that, that Susan really brings to the table. I think the other thing is, you know, 
in this venturing more into politics, but the fact that she's not a politician, um, I think is a potential credit to her in some ways, because, you know, sometimes you don't want the person down the hall to be thinking about running for president, you know, um, yep. and Susan won't be that. She'll be a governing uh, vice president if, if selected. Uh, and I think that, too, uh, brings a lot to the table. And, and what does that mean? It means that, OK, if you want to, you know, given how much stuff an incoming Biden administration is going to have to do legislatively to get out of this pandemic hole, everything else, you want to outsource to the vice president certain projects. And Obama did this. You know, the implementation of the Recovery Act went to Biden. Chunks of our foreign policy went to Biden. That kind of model could work here, where essentially Susan is able to manage certain chunks of foreign policy because she's got relationships with everyone around the world, mm-hmm. able potentially to pitch in on things like pandemic response or rebuilding the executive branch of the U.S. government. So if you want someone who can kind of be a partner from day one, understand how the executive branch functions from day one, understand how to walk into every room around the world from day one, like that's Susan. And the last thing I just say is like, she's, this is why it was so painful for some of us to see these caricatures of her. She's like the best friend, boss, you know, partner, foxhole mate that you could ask for. I mean, Susan Rice is is just a profoundly good person. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and I, you know, that doesn't always get across because of the way people have caricatured her. I mean, I, I was try, trying to think of, of, of an example and, and, and a one unflattering one to me probably uh, popped in my head, Tommy, which is you'll recall there was a magazine profile of me that didn't go so well in um, 2016. No idea. What and you're so, uh, yeah, so I was getting pounded. You know, I, I was in the eye of the storm. I mean, people were just, uh, you know, shredding me in, in the media. And it's, it's a pretty lonely thing when that happens. And I remember at the, the peak of that, you know, when I was just trying to put my head down and do my job, Susan called this big meeting in her office, you know, important. You have to be there, make sure your schedule is clear. And, you know, I walk into her office and it's a giant surprise party with everybody that I was close to in the White House and the NSC. Susan had put this all together just to buck me up. And by the way, buck me up, you know, when I'd been the one who got myself in trouble. Right? <laughs> um, it, it, you know, that's the kind of person she is, just looking out for you uh, and doing things quietly. You know, no one was going to write stories about that, right? Um, she's, she's just a good person, and, and I think people would love to get to know her. And, and look, she hasn't run for things before, but this is also not exactly a normal election, too. because <laughs> It's kind of the Zoom election. So, so I, I, that would be how I'd sum it up. I mean, can you imagine... What a relief it would be for Joe Biden if whoever his vice president is, he could say, you know what? I got to handle everything at home right now. Yeah. I need you to do like a tour of the globe to reassure all these allies that America is back. And to have someone who walks into the room having spent hours in meetings with Barack Obama or one-on-one having personal relationships with leaders from Germany to Asia to Africa and everywhere in between. I mean, that is an unbelievable asset. Yeah, no. And and having someone, you know, you could turn to too and say, hey, look, I got to deal with, you know, passing voting rights and healthcare and climate. And but man, we got to rebuild the EPA and the State Department and all these, you know, can you can you go cabinet to cabinet and, and help these people get what they need um, to, to rebuild their workforce? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that she would know how to do from day one that you could only know how to do that if you've been national security advisor and yeah. coordinated all those government agencies or you've been at an agency like state and knows how it's supposed to work you know so so yeah there's a, it's it's an unusual name when it popped on lists i think people probably raised their eyebrows but it's one of these ideas that the more you road test it you know and and to your benghazi point also like this has been beyond vetted <laughs> four years know, of uh, 
of bullshit investigations on this. What Trump has done, you know, should you know make anybody blush who uh, was a Benghazi stan. Um, it won't. But I'm trying to imagine the scenario where it's September and October. We're in a pandemic. We're in a depression. We're, you know, got fascist militias in the streets. And, and Trump's closing argument is Benghazi. Yeah, give I me mean, a break. Give me a break. Anybody who cares about that is already voting for Trump. <laughs> you know, right. Like, I, I'm sorry. It just is the case. Yeah. Look, all we're asking is stop shorthanding her record and experience as being about Benghazi and stop playing into this narrative that suddenly people are going to care about something that they are sick of hearing about. Joe Biden has a lot of great choices to be his vice president. I will be thrilled no matter who he picks. Yes. But like, give Susan her due. People go back into government because you finally know how to do the job, right? I mean, like, she will be so much better at this than, than uh, you know, anyone I think imagines. And so anyway, that's our pitch. Um, all right, Ben, you want to, let's talk a little China here because things are escalating in a scary way and it's happening behind the scenes. I talked a bit about this uh, with Mehdi Hassan uh, on Pod Save America on Monday, but I want to get your take too, because last week the U.S. ordered close uh, China's consulate in Houston, Texas. So U.S. officials told reporters that this facility was well known uh, as a hub for Chinese espionage operations. I don't normally take like the administration's claims at at face value, Ben, but in this case, I I think we should. Um, I believe them here. So it was a wild scene in Houston. I think the U.S. told China on Tuesday that the facility had to be closed by Friday. And so apparently consulate staffers were literally driving to Home Depot to buy barrels and then like filling them with classified documents and burning them. The firefighters showed up because this is all happening in their courtyard. It looks like a total mess. China quickly retaliated by announcing that they're going to close a U.S. consulate in, in Chengdu. Um, this is just the latest, you know, tit for tat escalation in this in this back and forth with China. We've had the trade war, the tariffs, the threats of travel bans. The you know, U.S. and China have been kicking journalists and journalists in air quotes uh, out of respective countries. Oddly, Ben, Mike Pompeo went to the Nixon Library to give a big speech on U.S.-China policy that was essentially a rebuke of everything that Nixon did. The speech itself was was really hawkish. It included all this like chest thumping about the need to confront China. And it was one in a series of speeches and actions by Pompeo and, and O'Brien and Bill Barr. Um, but the problem is, you know, while these speeches and things inflame tensions, the Chinese know that they are bullshit, right? Because like Pompeo can denounce China's actions in Hong Kong, but Trump told Xi Jinping on the phone that he wouldn't condemn the crackdown and that's borne out. Pompeo can and should denounce China's treatment of the Uyghurs. It's a crime against humanity, but Trump told Xi Jinping that he was right to build the camps. And then, you know, Pompeo can beat his chest about freedom and denounce communism, um, but Trump refuses to stand up to these right-wing, like anti-democratic leaders in Europe. So Ben, just, like a couple questions for you. like. First, just on this this consulate in Houston, what do you think was happening there? Do you think there's a, a good argument for shutting it down? And then I'm seeing analysts quoted saying that the U.S.-China relations are like the worst they've been since 1979. Do you believe that's true? So on the consulate, it's a little dramatic to shut down a consulate. I mean, <laughs> so we expelled a bunch of Russians, including shut down a facility, um, and, but this was done after they attacked our democracy and, and interfered in our election. It, it was in response to something quite specific. Look, the reality is, you know, yes, there, there are going to be espionage concerns at a lot of facilities. Usually you would start somewhere short of shutting on a consulate, you know, expelling a certain number of diplomats or something. It, it, it's like a lot of things with the U.S.-China relationship where we, we're kind of going from zero to 60 here 
in, in, a, in a nanosecond, you know, and it, so it does feel somewhat extreme. And that leads to the second question, which is, yeah, I actually, I think that this is about as bad as it's gotten um, in part because usually the, the, the Chinese U.S. relationship is like a scale and there's a bunch of irritants and bad things on one end. But then there's usually some area where you're working together. You know, so we all had a lot, a lot of fights with the Chinese, but like in the first term, they did a lot with us to restore the global economy. In the second term, they were indispensable to getting the Paris Agreement, the Iran nuclear deal. So usually there's good news and bad news in the relationship. Right now, there's nowhere in the entire U.S.-China relationship that is at all positive. It's all negative. And by the way, that's both parties' responsibility here, the Chinese government and the Trump administration. Yeah. And so that's new. And the other thing that's, I think, somewhat new is that if you look at the you know, Pompeo language echoed by some of these other administration officials, it, it really does seem to be not identifying concerns about specific Chinese actions. It's a kind of broad brush, Cold War, you know, get ready for battle, go to battle stations on every issue under the sun mentality. And, and it's also infected the Republican Party entirely. You know, Tom Cotton kind of breathing fire about the Chinese uh, at any given moment. Um, and look, we share these, a lot of these concerns, but it's also lazy. They're not like doing the work. You know, like if you were worried about the Chinese beating us to 5G technology, you'd be investing in that here. Uh, you'd be getting together with democratic countries around the world to think about how to call out what they're doing to the Uyghurs. It, we, here, we, you know, we have these guys like Pompeo just kind of pop off from like Washington or the Nixon library. And, and they're not like doing the diplomatic work to actually try to create some multilateral pressure on China. So it just feels like we're careening into this increasingly bilateral confrontation with the Chinese without a lot of strategy behind it in the first place. Yeah, I think that's right. It makes me makes me very, very nervous. There, there's a lot of things that will be handed to Joe Biden that will be difficult to manage. Uh, this feels like it will be at the top of the list. Yeah. So last week, this was a disconcerting article to read. The Trump administration announced that they will allow the sale of advanced armed drone technologies to foreign countries, which will undermine this decades-old uh, arms control agreement that America helped write called the Missile Technology Control Regime. That agreement is credited with helping prevent countries like Egypt and Iraq from getting certain kinds of advanced missile tech. It's a very good thing. Um, it's likely that Saudi Arabia the United Arab Emirates would be among the purchasers of these advanced drones. We're talking about things like the, the MQ-9 Reaper. Um, the thing to know about this kind of drone is that these are designed to hunt and kill human beings. So this is not surveillance. These are much bigger than predator drones. They carry a lot more uh, bombs and missiles, a bigger payload. So if these are sold to the Saudis, they will soon be killing people in Yemen. Um, this decision follows Pompeo's decision last year to declare a phony emergency and bypass Congress so we could sell more weapons to the same sort of group of Gulf states, including the Saudis. Other countries around the world have purchased or have been approved to purchase Reaper drones, including Australia, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, India. So like the, the, the horse is out of the barn in terms of this technology uh, leaving you know, US territory. Um, but there is concern that the further it spreads, the easier it is to just sort of copy it and replicate it. The Chinese have their own sort of version of the of the Reaper drone anyway. So, you know, I, I think part of this from the White House perspective is they don't want U.S. arms manufacturers to lose out on sales to Chinese manufacturers, which, again, we're viewing war as a commodity. That is that is not good. Um, ben, you know, I think the Israelis developed military drone tech, but the U.S. is the largest producer and user of them. 
Do you think that drones generally are a destabilizing enough technology that there needs to be a more stringent, broader set of international rules of the road like you see with other weapons? And like, yes. I, I ask this with humility, knowing that our former yeah. boss certainly used drones a considerable amount. Yeah, well, no, first of all, look, you should not sell uh, Reaper Predator drones to a guy who chopped up a Washington Post journalist. That's like, a good rule of thumb. Just yeah. full stop, right? Yeah. Like, no, um, never mind, you know, uh, the Saudis and Emiratis have both, you know, shown very little regard for civilians in Yemen, right? And so it's not hard to see how these would be misused immediately. Um, and, and that leads to the your point, which is that there should be a different, there should be a different standard about how we think about selling weapons in general. Uh, you know, Trump has completely turned it into just kind of like an industry. The more we can sell, the merrier. And, you know, there should, for any weapon systems, there should be some evaluation of, uh, you know, who we're selling it to. And, and that's generally been the tradition. I think with, with drones in general, it kind of connects to the Chinese question in the sense that there's a lot of growing concerns about artificial intelligence and how it intersects with uh, lethal weaponry, right? You have killer drones. You, have, you know, you're going to have killer robots soon enough. You've got killer cyber weapons. And, and there's not the kind of norms and standards around those weapons as there were around kind of the Cold War era weapons that concern people, chemical weapons and other things, nuclear weapons, obviously. Um, and so I think this is an area that demands the U.S. not doing this. And, and who cares if you know we're not getting in the Saudi market for armed drones? But then also, I think the U.S., Europe, other countries coming together and trying to initiate a kind of global effort to set some standards and norms around how these new technologies are used. I say that with the same humility you do. Part of the reason, though, that President Obama in the second term wanted to have a, a clear and public set of guidance for how he used drones is so that it could inform a potential international conversation about that. Um, and we talked about that at the time. So even if you think Obama overused drones or should not have used drones, it doesn't change the basic reality that this technology is out there and the best way of managing it is through some kind of arms control that ultimately you try to bring the Chinese and Russians into. Yeah, I mean, part of the reporting uh, on the specifics of this sort of advanced you know, drone sales decision was that the administration is considering just fully bypassing Congress entirely for all weapon sales, which is just... It's not how it works. It's just not how it works. Yeah. And the, yeah. the Republicans have let that happen. It would just be a, it's just a stunning... I guess not at all studying, just the latest yeah. abdication of their, their role in foreign policy and everything else. Yeah. Well, let's just anticipate that they won't take that view of Joe Biden as president. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Election day is November 3rd. Between a global pandemic and voter suppression efforts, it's critical to help every American register to vote and ensure that every last vote counts, which includes encouraging as many Americans as possible to request to vote by mail. VoteSaveAmerica.com is a one-stop shop for voter registration and engagement and has created an amazing hub that compiles the tools you need to request your vote by mail ballot early, to volunteer to call voters, or to be a poll worker and much more. Please visit VoteSaveAmerica.com right now to get involved with every last vote. All right, Ben, I want to start a little section of the pod today that's called uh, Ambassadors Gone Wild. So let's start in the UK uh, and have a little fun because last week, the New York Times broke the news that Trump once asked his ambassador to Britain 
to ask the British government if they could help steer the British Open Golf Tournament to Trump's golf resort in Scotland. The U.S. ambassador to the U.K. is this rich prick named Woody Johnson. He is the (laughs) billionaire heir to the Johnson & Johnson fortune. He's a big Trump donor, and he is the owner of the New York Jets football team, which may be the worst thing about him. Johnson uh, was advised by his deputy at the time that it would be unethical to make this ask. That's not a tough call. Johnson forged ahead anyway. He raised the issue with the Secretary of State for Scotland. That poor bastard is probably going to get drawn into so many investigations now. So uh, additional reporting by the Times showed that this was a pattern. Johnson serves Trump family wine at his, you know, events, despite the fact that it's probably dog shit. (laughs) Um, He's under fire also for comments that were considered racist or sexist. Um, A bit of context about Trump's resort in Scotland, because this sounds so petty. But when you learn that these these Scotland resorts are a financial disaster, it starts to make sense. I mean, the Washington Post said that Turnberry has not turned a profit since Trump bought it. His two Scottish courses lost $14.3 million in 2018. It's also part of a pattern. Trump wanted to steer the G8 to his resort in Miami. His other resorts have raked in millions of taxpayer dollars when he visits them. And Secret Service agents have to like rent golf carts at some exorbitant rate. Um, this deputy who, who advised uh, Ambassador Woody Johnson not to make this corrupt ask was later forced out of his job for allegedly saying something mildly nice about Obama during his speech. I think Johnson told him that he was a traitor. Uh, so Ben, of course, like Trump lied about this. He denied everything. It just goes without saying that like this would normally be, you know, an administration ending story. But the sad truth is that it seems like Johnson's actions and Trump's request are more likely to get Johnson in trouble with the NFL than the U.S. government. And I just uh, it just blows my mind. It's insane. I mean, especially because people should understand the ambassador of the U.K. is is usually a really important figure. Yeah. And, and yes, they've been political donors in the past, but but smart ones. Really who, good ones. Because, you know, you have the relationship with the U.K., which is incredibly important. But then also everybody kind of passes through London. It becomes a venue for a lot of diplomacy, um, often hosted by the U.S. ambassador. And so this is this is a very important post be, being used for, for what to get the, the the British Open at the the Trump golf course. Like <laughs> the, the, that's such a profound corruption of of our foreign policy that it, you know that that shockingly is not at all surprising, right? Um, I will say, Tommy, also like as a Jets fan. Um, my owners, right? My three teams, Knicks, Mets, Jets, right? The Knicks, we got James Dolan, widely seen as the worst owner in sports and a total asshole. The Wilpons mm-hmm. lost all their money to Bernie Madoff, uh, thereby cutting our payroll. And I think they're also Republicans. And now this Trump guy owns the Jets. I thought it couldn't get worse until there was recently a report that the Mets are being pursued by Sheldon Adelson. <laughs> so I don't know what I did as a small child to piss somebody off to end up with these owners, but here I am. Would you would you call this a diplomatic butt fumble? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well done. <laughs> so a lot of worldos uh, won't get that reference. but it's No, yeah. I, uh, Google it, it before you get mad at me, trust me. Uh, yeah, look, no, Obama's ambassador to the UK was a guy named Matthew Barson who like literally revolutionized diplomacy. He had the, all these events. He brought like, you know, Kentucky bluegrass and bourbon. People loved him. Like he actually did like you know create deeper ties between the u.s and the uk and then you have this you know guy's asshole accused of racism and sexism who couldn't manage an nfl team to save his life but uh the next example uh is even stranger somehow this is a story by cbs news that you flagged uh so Trump's ambassador to Iceland is this guy named Jeffrey Ross Gunter. Uh, he was reportedly so paranoid about his safety that he asked the State Department to get him special permission from the Icelandic government, where he was the ambassador, to carry a gun. And he also <laughs> discussed wearing a stab-proof vest. Now, 
Then for context, you know, in fairness to him, there was a spike in homicides in Iceland in 2017. So that means that there were four total instead of the usual uh, one to two. This is one of those stories, Ben, where you can tell everyone hated this guy because it was sourced to a dozen diplomats, government officials, former (laughs) officials, and individuals familiar with the situation. Like people were falling all over themselves to return this call. Here's a window into why. This guy, Gunter, has gone through seven, seven, seven deputy chiefs of missions or DCMs in 14 months. That's like your number two, who does all the real work when you're an idiot political ambassador like this guy. Uh, according to the CBS story, the first DCM prepared for the job for a year, learned Icelandic, and, and then was blocked by the ambassador because, quote, Gunter didn't like the look of him at their introductory meeting. <laughs> uh, he became enraged at another DCM for leaving snow boots under their own desk during winter in Iceland. Um, <laughs> Iceland. We've talked about ambassadors before. Some are foreign service. Some are donors. <laughs> some are people from outside of, you know, politics. 42% of Trump's ambassadors are political appointees rather than foreign service officers. That's up from 30% during the Obama administration. But again, I mean, like this isn't a problem of picking people outside the foreign service. It's like you probably shouldn't pick like paranoid sociopaths like this <laughs> yeah. guy or Rick Grinnell to be a diplomat. Like that seems kind of obvious. A diplomat, right? Uh, I mean, I mean, seven DCMs, it's almost impossible to, to, to communicate how much that that person runs the operations of the embassy. So that means that nobody's been running that embassy and mm-hmm. God knows what that embassy has been doing. No, no fault of the people who work there. They just, there's absolutely no leadership. Think of the, the disregard, the insult to the, the good people of Iceland to, to just have this guy there. Right. And yeah, like the safest country I can think of in the world, the, the guy wants to pack some heat and wear like a, a vest. Cause he has some, movie star view of being an ambassador like what is this guy even into <laughs> that, that he know. wants to walk around iceland carrying a piece and like wearing body armor <laughs> like this is someone with some some other problems that need to be looked into yeah. i will say to plug another vice presidential candidate potentially elizabeth warren had a very strong proposal in the primaries to get rid of political ambassadors I think you want to make some exceptions because there's some truly expert people, you know, like Mike McFall, an academic, was our ambassador to Russia, not not because he was a donor, just because he was an expert. But a genius, yeah. I do think that trying to hit a baseline of the default being the Trump excesses, like in a lot of areas, may prompt useful reforms anyway. And like, let's stop sending paranoid psychopaths out to pleasant countries like Iceland. Yeah, maybe they could send our old colleague uh, Mike Hammer, who is a you know NSC team member of ours, speaks Icelandic. I think I think Mike Hammer spoke seven languages actually. So, like when we met him, now it's like ten. He's gone on to be uh, ambassador to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Actually. And wasn't he in uh, Chile before? He was in Chile before that. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna get to Mike Pompeo in one second. This is why I think you guys probably hear a lot of rage and frustration from in our voices when we talk about the mistreatment of State Department employees. Imagine the nicest people you know who are so brilliant, who are so dedicated to the job that they speak seven languages, including fucking Icelandic, being kicked (laughs) around by some like, I don't know, ophthalmologist or whatever this schmuck is, donor (laughs) from California because they don't like the look of them. Like, that's not how you treat dedicated public servants. Yeah. And by the way, people who probably could make a giant pile of money in the private sector, right? So much. Who instead... To be in the foreign service, you kind of sign up for, if not life, for a very long period of time. So you're spending decades cycling around the world. Uh, and then some rich guy comes in and starts yelling at you about your snow boots in Iceland. <laughs> like, Iceland. <laughs> like, like the snow boots should be fine. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I wish I got that gig in you know, Kabul. Get out of this fucking hellhole. Yeah, yeah, um, 
So Ben, here's a window into why maybe these ambassadors are a disaster, why they're picking these terrible people. So the State Department is just totally mismanaged. And this week, the Senate Democrats are releasing a report uh, titled Diplomacy in Crisis, the Trump Administration's Decimation of the State Department. It's a very understated title. Uh, Politico's Nahal Tusi got an advanced look at this report. The broader release is time for when Pompeo finally testifies on the Hill later this week. But basically, they found that vacancies, turnover, uh, fear of political retaliation have led to really low morale and a huge rise in staffers uh, considering quitting. So, like, I'm glad the Democrats uh, put this report together because, one, like, you were saying this earlier about, you know, why Susan would be good. I mean, the, the State Department's going to have to be rebuilt. But I also think we need to set the record straight right now when it comes to Pompeo's tenure as Secretary of State. He went in after Rex Tillerson. He said they get their swagger back. Instead, he is just, like, demoralized and, and you know, run the place ragged. It's amazing. I mean, every year they try to decimate the State Department's budget and Congress, frankly, doesn't go along with it. We all saw in the impeachment, I mean, we, you know, the, the extent to which first they you know, badger these people, they subject them to these ambassadors we talk about or Rudy Giuliani coming in and layering right. them. Uh, and, and then, you know, they don't get their backs right when when they're they're attacked. Mike Pompeo was silent while these heroic State Department people were being savaged by his former colleagues in the House. So the morale there has got to be, and we haven't gone into like the criminality, which we've talked about on past episodes of Pompeo essentially using the State Department to launch an Iowa caucus campaign and force through Saudi weapons sales, you know, outside of the normal process here. So, you know, I, I think that the work that's going to have to be done is enormous because if you've had this exodus of foreign service officers, they're walking out the door with like hundreds and thousands of years of experience to cumulatively, that's gone. Like we're going to need to get that back. We need to consider ideas like letting people return at the level they were at, you know, which is not normally the case to just get people back. We're going to have to try to recruit, you know, worldos to come into the foreign service to rebuild this thing. And then like this guy, Pompeo, I noticed Tommy in like the story about this report when asked about these very concrete concerns that had been raised by the report, their statement is, quote, the State Department swagger is fully back? Like, what? The, what is that? Like, how juvenile can you get, you know? Yeah, they are terrible people. And the joke's on Mike Pompeo because there's no way Iowa is going yeah. first in this process. Well, and, and wouldn't he want, by the way, like, well, there, there's that. You should listen to your, your mini pod on Iowa. But wouldn't they, Mike Pompeo want a, a, a well-funded State Department and a, and a strong workforce? You would think. Like, it's so self-defeating, you know? You would think, yeah. It makes him look terrible. It makes everyone look terrible. It's just terrible. Um, let's talk about Bulgaria, Ben, because I don't think I've ever raised uh, the country on the show no. with you. So citizens in Bulgaria have been in the streets protesting for weeks now uh, about rampant corruption, and they've been calling on the entire government to resign. Uh, Bulgarian Prime Minister Boyko Borzov tried to mollify them by replacing four cabinet ministers. It did not work. Uh, the protests are so strong. So I'm drawing a lot of this from reporting by uh, Radio for Europe, The Economist, uh, European Council on Foreign Relations. And the story is a bit complicated, so bear with me. But the gist is these protesters started when the leader of an anti-corruption political party 
drove his small boat to a beach on the Black Sea and literally stepped on the shore and planted a Bulgarian flag. And he was there to make a point about corruption because these beaches are supposed to be open to the public, but it had been closed off and reserved for this rich businessman who's member of a powerful political party uh, that is not <laughs> that is not opposed to corruption, that is very much corrupt. So this anti-corruption advocate uh, was quickly like shoved into the water by a bunch of like plainclothes goons. And this like viral video was born and that went around the country. And the Bulgarian president, uh, Ruman Radov, saw it. He condemned the incident. And despite the fact that the Bulgarian president is basically powerless, the ceremonial position, the police decided to respond. They raided his office. They detained members of his staff in this like retaliatory act. It was punitive. And that led to even bigger protests, like with the classic, what we've seen all around the world, right? Like government over oversteps their bounds and responds and at least more protests. So the key thing to understand is that Bulgaria is the poorest and the most corrupt country in the European Union. Um, the protesters, observers, analysts, people say it's controlled by like a handful of unelected oligarchs. They have links to the mafia and people are just fed up with it. Surprisingly, the U.S. came out pretty strongly in favor of the protesters, even more forcefully than the European Union, of which Bulgaria is a part. Uh, the protesters are frustrated. They want the EU to more forcefully advocate for a rule of law, courts that actually work, democracy, anti-corruption. So, Ben, um, that might be everything I've ever known about Bulgaria. I don't know how big a deal you think these protests are. It's something we should watch or if this you know, speaks to a broader problem within the EU about their ability to actually you know, police these anti-corruption efforts or, or, or help these countries, you know, become more democratic. Yeah, no, well, there's been this problematic trend in, in the Central and Eastern European, some of the Central and Eastern European member states of the EU drifting to the right, kind of drifting towards this kind of oligarchic, you know, thuggish model of capitalism. If you look at Bulgaria, if you look at Hungary, if you look at, you know, Poland, we've talked about, um, this is, you know, this has been somewhat contagious, right? That this kind of politics as a vehicle for corruption. Um, and and I think that that does lead to the, your, your your point about the EU, which is they need to do more uh, to police this conduct. Um, I'll give you another example. Um, just last week, uh, one of the last remaining, I think one of the last two big independent media outlets in Hungary was just effectively shut down by the government, yeah. right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, the EU has a lot of leverage. They provide billions of dollars in funding for infrastructure projects in countries like Hungary and into Bulgaria. Like it's not like a choice between kicking these countries out of the EU or doing nothing. They could leverage these funds. They could use the tools they have to try to show that there are consequences for bad behavior, whether it be corruption or anti-democratic behavior. I think the EU is going to have to think a lot more seriously about using those tools in these cases. They've been reticent in the past. I think they're after Brexit, they were nervous about you know alienating and losing another member state. But ultimately, the value of the EU has to be that nations live up to a set of standards and that they're democratic and that they're not this corrupt. And, and so this is one where the EU has to step up. Yeah, I, I agree there. We'll keep watching this. We also should keep watching uh, a bunch of protests in eastern Russia, which broke out because basically the, the elected governor in the region was detained. It's always um, remarkable to see people in Russia on the streets protesting. It takes a lot of courage, uh, a lot of bravery. So we'll watch that closely. Um, I also want to ask you about one of your your heroes, your mentors, your favorite people, Bob Gates, because he has another book out. Um, it's like a Don Jr. pace here. I've not read it. I, <laughs> I don't think I will. But I read this review of it in the Washington Post that I thought was interesting. So Gates apparently in the book implores presidents and commanders 
uh, considering the use of military force to ask the following questions. Is the U.S. military the right or optimal solution to the problem? Are there non-military means that can achieve partial success instead of military force? What collateral damage will there be? Can we anticipate unintended consequences? And he specifically talks about Iraq and Afghanistan, where he says the U.S. allowed the, the mission there to balloon into these nation-building exercises. Um, now, I guess, you know, Gates, once again, is pretty harsh on Obama in the book. He says Obama and Trump were, quote, two successive presidents who have signaled an American withdrawal from global leadership. So that's frustrating. Like, But, you know, he's advocating for, like, diplomatic solutions that get you partway uh, to solving a problem, but I guess criticizes the Iran deal. He never mentions the Paris Climate Accords. So, you know, Ben... I know he's so frustrated. I went really deep on this and I got myself worked up. And then I decided, you know what? I'm going to ask you a more thoughtful question, which is, did Bob Gates oppose the 2009 Afghanistan surge when you oh, were in those, those meetings? Because, right, okay. He's like, You're just trying to trigger me now. Well, no, no. I mean, like, I read, I read all his, his advice there. Everything he says uh, is correct to me. But I also just read the C.J. Chivers book, The Fighters, and the, the chapter on Marja, which is uh, one of the first operations after the surge that the military took on, where they went to the heart of these Taliban strongholds, and they said they were going to move in, boot the Taliban guys out, bring what's called a government in a box, set it up, provide services to these people. It's like this major nation-building plan, right? And Bob Gates and Bob Gates's Pentagon were the ones not just pushing for that option, but pushing for tens of thousands of more U.S. service members yeah. for that option. And I guess my question is, what was Gates's position in those meetings? Is he now learning the lessons from that time, or, or is he just sort of hypocritical here? Yeah, let me, let me start from the premise of trying to be, you know, fair to Bob Gates. Which, but yeah, this urging of military restraint is good, and I'm glad that a former Secretary of Defense, you know, with a lot of stature, is doing it. There's a couple problems with it. Um, one is just, yeah, the facts of the history. He completely facilitated and enabled this dynamic where not only did he support it, but Obama was jammed with it. You know, I mean, you'll recall that like this McChrystal option is leaked to the press before it's been fully presented to the White House. Obama's completely jammed with this demand, essentially, for 40,000 more troops in Afghanistan, despite Obama telling them, I do not want to nation build. I want to have a mission focused on counterterrorism and strengthening the Afghan government. They still are so wedded to the concept of their counterinsurgency strategy, the government in a box type stuff you talk about, that it leads to this massive operation in southern Afghanistan, Marja. Enormous amount, you know, peak for U.S. casualties, I think, in the Afghan war. Obviously, tremendous casualties on the Afghan side. Mm -hmm. And frankly, what Petraeus and the military wanted to do is move that all around the country. So move that up to the east, too, of Afghanistan. And Obama finally said, no, this isn't, it wasn't working, first of all. And yeah. they'd give us very rosy assessments of it that, you know, you would use in your press guidance. And then you would learn later well, actually, it wasn't that rosy, you know? Um, and, and so they were, they were really selling this. And what bothers me about this is it's not about the past. It's about the fact that he, I don't understand his critique of Obama because his critique of Obama has been that Obama wasn't sufficiently committed to this mission in Afghanistan. Like he right. said that. Well, so basically you're saying he wasn't sufficiently committed to the very nation building that you were saying has been the problem with American foreign policy. I, so what, I want to welcome the critique about not getting into to wars, but the things that are necessary to not get into wars are like the Iran deal, which he then criticizes, right? Or not doing that in Afghanistan, right? And, and so he, he takes his criticism and he says enough to get heads nodding about this, but the logic of positions he's taken and things he's criticized 
how is Obama with, was how was Obama withdrawing from the world in any way other than trying to get us out of those wars? Because diplomatically, we were doing all this other stuff, right? So I sincerely want him to succeed in this argument. I don't know how you can be against those things and against the Iran deal, right? Like. To me, those arguments are in contradiction with each other. Yeah, and look, I may be overstating, you know, his criticism of the Iran deal. It might be the usual throat clearing. It was flawed. It was this. No, that. no, it's a lot of throat clearing. To your point, it, like it, you're right. I, I believe that he is sincere when he talks about the toll it took on him, yes. how difficult it yes. was to see U.S. service members dying. But it does lead me back to like, look, I, I'm rethinking a lot of things from the Obama era. Everything I read about Afghanistan makes me think the 09 surge was a mistake. This is the one I rethink the most. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wonder where the fuck was he with this argument then? Because if he's the wise Yoda, you know, calling for restraint, he had a chance to keep 30,000 guys from going to Afghanistan. And and look, I, I what he might say, right, is that, well, you know, we were there, so we had to finish the job and I didn't get us there. Right. I'm sure he supported the war in Afghanistan, though. But I actually don't agree with that. Like just because we this is the mindset that gets us into trouble in Afghanistan and Vietnam and other places that we go someplace and the mission changes to nation building. Right. We went from going into Afghanistan to try to get Osama bin Laden and, and Al Qaeda to to building a government in a box in Marja, right? And and but which, by the way, didn't even work. Um, so I, I just I, I think that the the logic of of saying you know all this nation building in places where we are, I'm for, but we shouldn't start the new wars. I I don't know. I, you have to you have to apply the logic across the board, which is don't start the new wars, and maybe you know don't don't have tried to take on all those things in Afghanistan either. Yeah, the, the the sunk cost fallacy. We've given so much, we can't stop now. It's like, well, yeah. that's a recipe for yeah. two decades later, you're still there. Uh, ben, let's talk about TikTok for a minute. So listeners probably know the app, lots of dancing, fun, you know, like creative short form videos. It's insanely popular, billion plus downloads. Um, I have friends here in LA in the music business who say like the entire industry has reoriented around getting songs to trend on TikTok. It's that powerful. So TikTok has become controversial. It's owned by a massive Chinese technology company called ByteDance. ByteDance was founded in 2012. They own a bunch of other you know, technology apps like news aggregators in China and stuff. The concern that American officials have about TikTok is that uh, the company could potentially be pressured by the Chinese government to censor content or hand over user data. TikTok says they've never been censored uh, by the Chinese government. They've never been asked to make changes and that they store all their US user data in Virginia or Singapore. It's worth noting that India blocked TikTok and a bunch of other Chinese apps. Recently, that was in the wake of a border clash between the Chinese and Indian troops, um, but it's notable. Mike Pompeo has suggested that the U.S. may follow suit as part of these sort of punitive steps against China. Um, Kevin Roos, who's a great technology reporter at The New York Times, did a smart piece, I thought, trying to separate like the real concern from some of the hysteria around TikTok. He argues convincingly, in my opinion, that Focusing on TikTok is a bit of a red herring. It's just, it's very popular, but there are lots of other video games and apps and platforms that are owned by Chinese companies that we just don't know about or aren't as familiar with that could pose a similar risk. Now, the answer is like smart regulation and rules of the road and not banning them. Then what is your take on this like growing public debate about the risks from TikTok? You hear about it a lot on the right from sort of China hawks. Then I think there are parents who have sort of good faith concerns about their children uploading, you know, their their facial images when facial recognition technology is the next step in the world uh, or or AI. Maybe it could be used to like train Chinese AI. Like, What's the rational opinion on this? 
I mean, look, I, I think you should definitely be concerned if it's a Chinese company. There's not really the kind of firewall between that company and the government as there is here, you know, um, that the, the, the Chinese government has generally been able to get what it wants from Chinese companies. That's how the Chinese companies are allowed to operate, you know, in, in this kind of quasi, you know, op- capitalist, quasi closed uh, society. And and so that means, yeah, there's scenarios where they could vacuum up data to improve their facial recognition capacity. They could, you know, use TikTok to monitor people's views, that kind of thing. But, you know, the reality is also that any social media platform has some, you know, Facebook is going to you know, vacuum up your data and sell it to advertisers and and maybe to Cambridge Analytica to, you know, help swing elections, right? I mean, that. I think the point is that it's hard to tell kids, you know, um, and I can't believe I just said kids like I'm some old old guy, you know, but um, it's hard to tell people, you know, don't use this because, you know, this one happens to be Chinese. I do think for any social media user, just be mindful that nothing is as private as you think it is, or even if a public platform that the data that you upload could be used for purposes other than what you intended, you know, which is to entertain your friends and followers. Just kind of know that, right? You know, have that in your head. I'd like to see government begin to regulate these platforms. We can't necessarily regulate them the same way we can U.S. companies, but we can in terms of things that they do in the U.S. So the point is, I don't think the answer is kicking them out, shutting them down here. I think it is a mixture of like, we should be regulating big tech anyway um, to deal with some of the issues of hate speech and disinformation we've talked about. And that users should just be mindful of the fact that the data that they're uploading is probably going to be used for other things. And if you're comfortable with that, then you're comfortable with that. Good advice. Um, last thing. So we, you know, we started at the top. I mentioned that your goddamn Mets beat my Red Sox. They play again today. I think they play a couple more times, <laughs> but I'm a little nervous, man, about this season actually happening. Uh, I, I'm shoehorning this into Pod Save the World because technically the MLB is an international league. Um, the Florida Marlins. Yes season is now temporarily suspended after 17 players tested positive for the coronavirus. This feels like it's going to be a big problem. There, there's no like bubble system like the NBA has to quarantine players in one place. Teams are bigger. There's more travel. I understand why, right? You can't like shrink down the league. I guess you could have done like multiple bubbles or something, but like, how are you feeling about the likelihood that the MLB is going to happen college football, the NFL, like, I mean, I guess the NFL has, has shown a willingness to continue playing a, a game uh, at great health risk to the players. So maybe they're in yeah. a different category here. But I don't know. 17 players on the Marlins seem like a lot. Yeah, I, I had this feeling watching baseball that I'm not going to be watching like a World Series at the end of this process uh, as much as I wish I could and wish I wish it would happen. I mean, it it's a microcosm for what's happening more broadly in the country, like just this incapacity to do everything necessary to deal with this. Um, an inability in this case to get on top of it, even after it was known that some of these players were sick or tested positive, they were still playing and that's how more people got sick. You know, so baseball is going to have to obviously tighten this down, but I think we all have to, like, I want sports as much as anybody. It sucks not having sports, but like, you know, are we going to make college kids who aren't even paid to play? Like, no way that should happen. There should not be college football, right? At least these professional athletes are kind of making choices and and have a a means, right? 
um, there's college sports to me sounds insane to risk. And at the end of the day, it's like every, nobody is happy with where things are, but the reality is it's maybe better off to just accept that 2020 is going to suck, you know, and we'll all come back at this in 2021 because otherwise there could be you know, a lot more of this. Yeah. I mean, to all the people who think like, well, they're young, they're healthy, they're pro athletes, they'll get the flu, it'll go away, they'll be fine. I mean, there's a 27 year old pitcher on the Red Sox who now has a heart condition and can't play because of the coronavirus. Yeah. For every player you see, there's a coach or a manager or trainer who could yeah. be in his or her 50s, 60s, 70s, who could literally die if they catch it. I mean, there's a lot of ways this thing breaks worse than a bunch of players not, you know, getting the disease and, and not being able to go this weekend. Yeah, you know, and we and we don't fully know what the long-term consequences of having a severe case of this are, you know, heart disease, lung disease, you know, that, that by the way, as you point out, like can impact athletes' careers yep. disproportionately. So, uh, man, I would err on the, like, I'd love to see sports, but I just, I hope they err on the side of caution in all regards. And I, I truly hope that these college kids who aren't paid, which is a whole other atrocity, are not forced to do this either. Yeah, uh, agreed with that. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have Ben's interview with Yonit Levy about everything that's happening uh, politically in Israel, including the coronavirus, including these massive protests that we're seeing, and my deep abiding hope that one day Bibi Netanyahu is not in charge. So stay tuned. I'm Akila Hughes. And I'm Gideon Resnick. We are the hosts of What a Day, Crooked Media's daily news podcast. Look, we understand keeping up with the flood of news every day is hard. There are updates on coronavirus, Disney reopenings, animal news. What else? So much else. But we're here to help you cut through all that. We break down the biggest news stories each day and help you understand what's important and what you can do about it, all in 20 minutes or less. Episodes of What a Day come out every morning, Monday through Friday at 4 a.m. Eastern, wherever you listen to podcasts. But you actually don't have to listen that early. Don't get up that early, please. I'm now very happy to be joined by the Israeli journalist Yonit Levy. Uh, Yonit currently anchors Israel's top primetime news program. Uh, she's someone who's interviewed me, uh, and uh, Yonit, I think those were probably much tougher interviews than this one is about to be, but you're as smart as anyone I know about uh, Israeli politics, so really glad to have you on finally. Thank you, Ben. Uh, it's great to be on, and I'm wondering how the tables have turned. I mean, I've been asking these tough <laughs> questions yeah. for so many years, and finally... Revenge is yours. Yes. We serve in government long enough and they give you a podcast is what we've learned in America. Um, so look, I, we, we're really happy to have you on because in the last few weeks, with everything going on here, you know, I think Americans have increasingly seen these images of, of mass protests that have broken out nationwide in Israel. And I, I know that these have many causes. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's handling of the coronavirus, some concerns around you know, anti-democratic moves. Uh, he's currently facing charges related to corruption. But but wanted to ask you, you know, what set off these protests? Who is leading them? Why have they uh, grown so so large? Uh, and how have you seen them evolve in the last couple of weeks? Well, I mean, it's 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 really interesting. And we are living in the age of unprecedented events, right? But this really is unprecedented. And th there are many groups protesting. They, they don't have a central leadership and they don't have a clear leader. But what they do have is a lot of frustration and a lot of rage, and it is targeted against Netanyahu personally. Now, you have to sort of 
say that there are two main groups in particular. Those, the people who oppose Netanyahu politically and their main agenda is to push him out of office. You know, they're furious at what they see as the prime minister betraying their values and not resigning after being indicted. Now, these are people who in generally have been protesting against Netanyahu for years and years. But the second group um, that sort of uh, was brought forth uh, because of the, the coronavirus um, are younger Israelis, middle of the road, some of them are even Netanyahu voters, who are hurting very badly in the wake of the coronavirus and the uh, economic crisis, right? And the pandemic has, has dealt a critical blow uh, to their uh, financial situation. They see a prime minister who, in their eyes, not only doesn't realize this, right, and comes, you know, starts uh, setting up an economic plan, he declares, with pomp and circumstance, but then the, the money gets stuck in bureaucracy and they don't res- receive the money, they don't see it. But they also see a prime minister who, at the same time that they are struggling asks for tax exemptions for himself, right? And they see him dealing in what they think is petty politics instead of helping them out. And they're furious. So so for the first time in a long time, Netanyahu is really out of sync with some of his supporters. And this is a man with very sharp political instincts. Uh, and of course, the, the coronavirus uh, is the backdrop of all this. Um, so you, got, you have to say, Ben, we're not seeing a revolution here, right? I mean, Israel is a democracy. Netanyahu, if he will be replaced, will be replaced in the ballot box and on election day, however close or far that may be. So you mentioned election day. I mean, what are the goal of these protests? Um, I know some people are obviously calling for Netanyahu to resign. We've seen very powerful images of protesters kind of outside of his residence. Um, but but what, when you look at the broad-based and, and these two groups you talk about, what would they like to have happen next? Is, it, is this about getting, you know, just relief from the economic fallout of the coronavirus? Or is it about a desire for political change? And, and if it's political change, you know, Yonid, I know you've had to anchor three election nights in the, the last couple of years. Are, are you headed to a fourth sometime soon? Uh, where do you see this going? Um, God help me if we're heading for a fourth. I yeah. should regret not being paid per election night broadcast and only a monthly salary. <laughs> um, but seriously, we, we may well be staring down the barrel of fourth elections in a year and a half. I mean, just take a moment to try and realize what that means. If, if we do take that reckless road, it will be because Netanyahu decided to take that road, not because the protesters did. Now, we, we have to say something about the option of fourth elections because it has been discussed rather um, loudly in Israel in the past week. Um, and, and we have to say that if we, we will have these fourth elections, they will be different from that cycle of three elections that you mentioned. Because at the end of the third election in March 2020, when, when coronavirus was on the rise for the first time, Benny Gantz, Netanyahu's main challenger, who fought as well as he knows how, and blocked Netanyahu's victory three times, basically in a shocking move, joined forces with him, right, and established a unity government, thus losing the confidence of, of his voters. Uh, um, I'm saying that because th- th- this time around, there's an opposition that is deeply, deeply fractured, right? And 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 we always said about uh, Benny Gantz that he doesn't have the killer instinct. Well, it appears that he does have the killer instinct, but it's directed towards his own political career. But, but seriously, now, <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the rationale for Netanyahu is let's go to elections as quickly as possible. I don't have a challenger. The more I wait, Corona and economy might deteriorate. And of course, the main part of his trial commences in, in January. 
Um, it's still very complicated if he wants fourth elections. You know, he has to break the agreement with Gantz. It's, it's a reckless move, and he's going to have to convince Israelis that, that uh, it's something that's worthwhile, and he's not doing it just because of his legal predicament. But when you ask what the goal is, that was a long-winded answer to a very short question. I apologize for that. Yeah, when you no, ask no. Well, what the goal is, these protesters, again, part of them want to see him out as quickly as possible. The other part just want some sort of assistance with their economic woes. But we have seen 6,000 people outside of the prime minister's residence last Saturday. People standing around, you know, different crossroads in Israel from south to north. So this is a, a big, big deal. Yeah. Well, uh, you need to give a long answer because it's Israeli politics, like American politics, always <laughs> needs a long answer. Uh, so to unpack some of the other things lurking in the background here, um, you mentioned the, the corruption trial. You know, he began standing trial for these charges earlier in the spring. Uh, now the trial is set to pick back up in, in January, as you mentioned. What's going on with that? Why, why this pause? How much do you think this has shaped kind of Netanyahu's view of his own political situation? Where do you see that storyline going? Why the pause? Because sadly, the Israeli judicial system works slowly. And I know that looking at it from the American system that works quite swiftly, um, it, it seems uh, strange. But, but there's no, I mean, there's no foul play, play here. I mean, the proceedings aren't compromised. It's just the way that the Israeli system works. It's very slow. When you look at Olmert's trial, Prime Minister Olmert, who was Netanyahu's predecessor, that took two years, right? Yeah. So this is, in Israel, by Israeli standards, by the way, the fact that the judge said uh, this week that Netanyahu will be required to show up three times a week when his trial commences in January is actually quite quick. Um, but, but I think, again, the, the salient point is that Netanyahu, and again, we talked about the elections, Netanyahu, if he wins, and this is important to say again, for three attempts, he did not win a majority in Israel. The magic number in Israel is 61. You need 61 members of Knesset to form a coalition and to set up your government. He failed to do that three times. If he wins, and this is, right, his big dream, if he manages to do that, he will try in any way to delay the trial, to maybe, again, in his wildest dreams, somehow manage to stop the trial completely, right? If he manages to either seek immunity for the Knesset yeah. or a bill that retroactively prevents the trial, this is all sort of in fantasy land right now, because, again, he failed to do that three times around. But that would be his yeah. plan. His plan. His plan would be to try and delay the trial uh, as much as he can. Uh, you know, he, of course, would say this is a witch hunt. There is nothing here, et cetera, et cetera. Texts that could Oaks, seem familiar yeah. to you um, yes. from other examples. So basically, in the current status quo, right, he doesn't have the strength in the Knesset to do some of those more extreme things you mentioned, like have immunity, you know, uh, delay or cancel this trial. <clears throat> so the incentive for another election might just be to try to address that problem. But at the same time, he doesn't seem to be uh, in particularly strong political standing, right? I mean, so that, that's kind of the dilemma he's facing. Exactly. And, and, and on the one hand, as you say, to finally break, break out and have that success and try and, and delay his trial. On the, on the other hand, of course, this is a huge gamble, right? Coronavirus, the economic crisis, it is, is a huge uh, gamble. And that's why I think he's, he has not yet decided uh, what, what, what to do. 
So the, uh, another issue we watched closer from here is uh, possible annexation uh, of certain uh, settlement blocks in the, in the West Bank. Um, a lot of build up to this, a lot of anticipation of this. Um, it seems to be somewhat on hold now. How has the, the current political dynamic, the protest, affected annexation and, and, and where does that issue currently stand? Again, annexation has been put on freeze right now. Um, because of the situation in Israel, right? Uh, I have to tell you that we put out a poll a few weeks ago um, asking Israelis what they care about uh, most. And somewhere between 70 uh, and 80% said the one thing they care about the most is coronavirus and their economic woes. You want to guess, Ben, how many Israelis said they care about annexation? Definitely less than 50%, I would imagine, right? 4%. 4%. So you, you know... I think that it was an important moment for Netanyahu to realize that if he's trying to push forth this plan, Israelis are not, are not with him. They're not on the same page. They're, they're probably not in the same library um, as he is. Um, and and I, I think it's important to, to try and say this um, right now. First of all, there have been, as you know, many warnings around the world, for example, you know, and from Arab states, the ambassador of the UAE to, to Washington had a strong warning directly to the Israeli people about the risks of annexation. The White House pushed the brakes on this, right? Re- realizing that Netanyahu's coalition, he doesn't have um, coalition, even though he does have a coalition, Benny Gantz is not with him on this annexation thing. I mean, Benny Gantz was signaling the White House saying, you know, guys, you should push the brakes on this right now. And of course, as I said, it's the, it's the coronavirus in Israel and in the U.S. that, that m- created the situation where people have more urgent things to deal with. Um, but, but I would want to say this, Ben. I mean, you've, you've known Israel for a long time. You know that annexation has been for many years an idea that kind of lived in the fringes of the Israeli political spectrum. Yeah. I mean, Israelis... You know, maybe there was a politician, one or two politicians who talked about it, but no one acted upon this. Yeah. Um, and what is different now is, is that Donald Trump signaled that this is a possibility. Now, of course, this raises the question, what happens if Trump loses? On the one hand, this could be a signal for the Israeli right saying, OK, guys, it's now or never, right? Yeah, yeah um, exactly. But on the other hand, Bibi has always been kind of trepidatious when it comes to making those kind of sharp, stark moves. And he might be afraid of the Biden administration trying to rescind annexation. So I would basically say that it's off the radar right now, but it's not completely off the table. Yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting, you know, that at the time, you know, Netanyahu often focuses on security threats, Iran, issues related to uh, the Palestinians. You know, people are focused on <laughs> COVID and the economic fallout there like they are here. It makes complete sense. Um, so here there's obviously been this debate and we've, you know, uh, talked about it on this podcast uh, within the Democratic Party about how to respond to the moves by the Netanyahu government in recent years, first in, you know, breaking with my old boss, Barack Obama, very publicly and politically on the Iran deal, uh, then embracing Trump, and then, of course, this kind of momentum towards annexation, which cuts against, you know, the Democratic Party's platform uh, supporting two states. Um, and, and you and I actually met in Washington. Um, what feels like a million years ago, but it was only a few months ago. Um, and yeah, you, you were kind of traveling around evaluating Democratic uh, Party uh, views of Israel. And, you know, the, the debates have been, okay, does there have to be some conditionality of assistance if Israel uh, takes a step of annexation? 
Are there other things that we can do to kind of revive a more bond two-state solution? How closely are people in Israel following these debates in the Democratic Party? And, and, and what would you say to Democrats about how the debate is being received in, inside of Israel? Well, first of all, Israelis follow it closely. Um, and they're, I think it's okay to say that they're interested about, uh, in how this affects them. Now, again, through Israeli eyes, there are two things that are going on here. One is the drift of the Democratic Party away from Israel. Um, which I think Israelis think they don't have any control over, they may be wrong, right? And the second thing that is going on is the is Netanyahu and the Israeli right drifting away from the Democratic Party. Now, it might not shock you, Ben, to, to hear that many would <laughs> emphasize the first point and sort of de-emphasize the second and maybe even fail yeah. to see the connection between the two. But definitely Israelis are following the debate inside the Democratic Party. It's very interesting to follow right between the centrists and the progressives. And we talked about this when we met, right, that for the first time, Israelis heard prominent presidential candidates talking about conditioning aid to Israel. I do think many Israelis breathed a sigh of relief when it became clear that Joe Biden is the nominee. Um, but yes, they are conscious of the fact that this uh, is an issue that should be addressed. And, you know, this is obviously, you know, being discussed in the context of annexation, but, you know, the other policy, main policy difference, the previous administration that when I served in was Iran, obviously. Uh, you need, somewhere there's tape of you grilling me on, on every detail of the Iran uh, deal. I, I always like to, 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 to start with you before moving to the U.S. media because I knew you'd really, really give me my paces on that. Um, but the thing I'm watching now By closely... By the way, it's not these... somewhere, Ben. The recording is right on my bedside, um, and I see it <laughs> yeah, occasionally yes. when I need to remember what a sharp journalist I used to be. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, back when there was like highly substantive things to discuss. <laughs> but um, the... Um, you know, right now we're watching this kind of string of explosions inside of Iran. Um, you and I might both have our suspicions that those might not just be happening by coincidence. You know, one of the things that, that I've wondered is, you know, whether or not, as with the talk of annexation, you might see much more aggress aggressive Israeli action against Iran and its nuclear infrastructure in the run-up to an election, even in a transition. I remember in 2008 when Obama got elected, that's, you know, the Gaza war took place. Um, are people watching this situation closely? Or are there are there concerns that, um, despite I think the you know very broad concerns in Israel about Iran, are, are there concerns that th that this could escalate uh, uh, more dramatically than than what we've even already seen? Well, first of all, Israelis are definitely watching this closely, um, and I think you know generally speaking. Um, in the realm of the hypothetical, right? I, I think it's important to ask, um, what is the end game, right? I mean, let's say one of us uh, was intimately involved in with the Obama administration Iran policy and <laughs> with the JCPOA, right? And I think the important thing to ask ourselves now is, at the point that we are, right, what would you advise the the Biden administration? Would you say, you know what, try bringing Iran back to the negotiating table and maybe um, creating a, a deal like the JCPOA a little better than the JCPOA. And then I want, I, you know, I'm, I'm turning the tables back on you and asking, do you think that if that is what you would recommend, maybe, maybe the fact that um, you have leverage, maybe the fact that advanced centrifuges are blown up in the uranium enrichment facility in Natanz is not necessarily a bad thing. 
I know I'm probably getting you all huffy. Am I getting you all huffy, Ben? <laughs> no, but look, I, I, I've heard that argument. I don't, the reason I don't uh, agree with it is essentially that, uh, look, you got to get, I would like to see us get back to the foundation of what was in the JCPOA to build on, right? I mean, obviously, you know, the other concerns people have, provisions expiring, ballistic missiles, uh, you know, you can't get to those things unless you stop a nuclear clock. And I think the only way to solve the nuclear clock with any degree of competence is a diplomatic agreement that, you know, has an inspections and verification regime. And my worry is that the, the combination of action, sanctions, and, and whatever's happening now, um, you know, is, is going to make it, it's going to be hard enough, I think, to get Iran to come back into a deal that it feels like, rightly, the U.S. violated before they did. Um, I, I worry about this kind of making it politically impossible for the Iranians to find that road back. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, what's interesting is that if that's the theory of the Israeli government, it's interesting to me that that's a theory, and I'm not saying you suggested that, but if that is the theory of the Israeli government, it suggests that their policy isn't just capitalizing the moment of Trump, it's also perhaps trying to shape whatever negotiation a Biden administration has, right? I mean, that, that may be another way of looking at it. I, w- I would make this point. This isn't an issue, I believe, of timing. I'm going to throw you to a, a very strange direction right now, but bear with me. There was a great Hollywood producer called Robert, Robert Evans who once said that luck is the combination of opportunity meets preparation, right? I doubt that he ever thought anyone would use that sentence while talking about the Iranian nuclear program, but what I'm trying to say is that these kinds of events, like what happened in the Tons, and again, I, I don't know who did it, but these kinds of events have um, need preparation, they need opportunity, they need intelligence. This does not happen because someone says, okay, we have two months to shape something, let's do it quickly. Yeah, no, I understand that. And, you know, I I guess it's, the one way to look at it, though, is that there's no way in which this would be happening if there was still a JCPOA, right? Um, The U.S. wouldn't permit it, you know. Um, And and so to me, the basic policy trade-off continues to be can you roll back the Iranian nuclear program with greater degree of confidence through a diplomatic agreement or through kind of ad hoc actions like this, you know, and then that's where, um, that's where there'll have to be an alignment, uh, or, you know, between the U S and, and the P five plus one. And the, and the question of, of how Israel positions itself in that, is it a spoiler or is it, um, essentially accepting that, new reality if Joe Biden's elected. That will be an interesting test, early test of a Biden-Netanyahu relationship, you know? For sure, for sure. But again, yeah, yeah. Um, as frustrated as you are um, looking at the fact that President Trump withdrew from the JCPOA, I think, again, the question to ask is, what now? What do we do now? And what do we do now if, 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 if Joe Biden is elected president? If I had answers yeah, for that, uh, I would be running for office in Israel, but I do not and I will not. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Well, look, uh, we covered a, a lot. I hope to get back to Israel uh, when we're freed from our uh, homes. Are you, how has COVID been for you? I know you've got young family and you've got a high stress job. I mean, it can be great. As best as I can with the world turned upside down. How are you doing over there? Yeah, as best I can with the world turned upside down, you know, and, and school probably not opening in the fall. Learning how to homeschool a three and a five-year-old at times. 
I hear you. <laughs> All right. Well, look, it's great talking to you. Uh, hopefully, we'll have you on again to cover developments as they appear in Israel. And uh, hope you guys are staying safe and well. You too. Thanks to Yoni for joining the show today, Ben. Thanks to you. I hope I didn't bum you out with all this baseball talk at the end, I feel like. No, baseball is my favorite sport, man. I'm bummed out that there's not much of a baseball season. And I'm bummed out, as always, watching Taiwanese fans, like, you know, having the time of their lives in the stands because they... Love life. They crushed. <laughs> they're just loving life. Man. I didn't know the Sheldon Adelson thing. That's yeah, yeah, that's, that's, Man, that's all I need. I mean, at least the payroll will be bigger, but I don't know. It's not worth it. Do you buy these rumors that Barack Obama is going to buy an NBA team someday? Look, I, I think Barack Obama is going to be very involved with the NBA one way or another. And uh, yeah, he'd be a great owner, but you know, they're growing their global business. They're in Africa. They're in, obviously, we talked about China. Um, so I, I think Barack Obama, you know, world's biggest NBA fan is going to be a, a big asset for the NBA. That would be fun. That would be a fun gig. All right, buddy. Well, well uh, great to see you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will talk to you next week. Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Special thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos every week.